the Census Bureau is already applying lessons learned from the 2020 decennial count in preparing for 2030 and even 2040. For one thing, it learned how to lower costs through employee productivity, so 2020 came in nearly $2 billion under budget. The Government Accountability Office finds Census could tighten up its internal feedback loop. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Strategic Issues, Yvonne Jones. Ms. Jones, good to have you back. Thank you. Glad to be back. The dominant impression I get from the report is that really the Census Bureau pulled off a minor miracle to get this count done fairly on time, given COVID, and way under budget. I mean, it's a wonder they don't just make it all up. But this is a real count, isn't it? Yes, it is. And so the idea of lessons learned, I want to start there. I didn't realize after using that expression a hundred million times myself and hearing it a billion times, there's actually an eight-step lessons learned process that GAO has identified. Let's start there. We've done quite a bit of research in this area, and we defined a lessons learned exercise as a systematic set of steps for agencies to learn from an, an event and decide when and how to use that information to change their behavior. So you're right, there are eight steps. So very briefly, first, an agency collects information, then it analyzes it, then it goes through a process to validate any lessons that it feels it has acquired through the collecting and analyzing of the data. Then it has to store or save the lessons for current and future use. It shares the lessons in the agency. Then management will decide whether to spend money to apply the lessons to the agency's activities. And then they will try to see if there are changes in the behavior of staff and others to verify if the lessons were learned. And then as a final step, they will evaluate the lessons by comparing the money spent to the results obtained. All right. And you found that the Census Bureau is doing seven of those eight steps. Which ones do you recommend that they add? Well, it's the eighth step, which is evaluating the lessons by comparing the money spent to the results obtained. You know, as you as you said earlier, the census was carried out in a different way this past time because of many different factors, among which were the COVID pandemic. So while the census, you know, has a, a good understanding, you know, of the steps of lessons learned, they did not have the opportunity in the 2020 census to evaluate the lessons by comparing the money spent to the results obtained. And then looking for 2030 then. Mm-hmm the lessons from the displacements or the changes in plans caused by the COVID, I would imagine that's a difficult thing to bake into your next plan because maybe there won't be a pandemic. And then what do you do? Is that one of the questions they're facing? Well, certainly they do need to understand how what happened in in terms of both their schedule and cost estimates how these factors were impacted by all of the, the changes that required were required in, in the 2020 census. But the census collects quite a bit of information itself. For example, it archives a monthly snapshot of its master schedule file, and that's the way it manages the schedules for all the census activities. Then it can go back later and, and compare what actually happened to what the estimated schedule was. They have done some of that for the 2020 census. We feel that they could deepen and broaden that process. And in doing so, that they would incorporate that into their preparations for the 2030 census. And they would also understand more where they were on point and perhaps a bit off point 
in the 2020 census. We're speaking with Yvonne Jones, Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. So it sounds like they may not know the dollar costs of each thing, but they know the ratios and they can adjust the proportions of money devoted to different activities from this feedback, even if the gross numbers might be different because of changing prices for technology. They, they actually know, know the numbers and the time differential in a number of cases, not necessarily for every case, because as they informed us, they had to make a lot of changes very quickly because of unexpected events like the pandemic. But they would be aware of a lot of the quantitative elements, and they do have the capacity for collecting more information for the elements for which they don't have as much detail. And they found, you found, that they found that some costs that they anticipated came in higher and some came in lower even That's though the, the overall tab was less than anticipated. And mm-hmm. so how do you reconcile that? What should they do with that information? First of all, you know, the census has been engaged in in a process of trying to reduce the rate of growth of the census for, for over a decade. And as a matter of fact, with a 135 billion dollar cost. That's the estimate as of September of 2022, as compared to the estimated cost of 15.6 billion. Yes, it does represent a $2 billion decrease from the original estimate. But I think more importantly, one should understand that the rate of growth of the increase of the cost has come down quite a bit. There was a 15% increase in cost between the 2000 and the 2010 census there was a 7.4% increase in the rate of growth of the cost between the 2010 and the 2020. So that shows that some of the efforts that they undertook to reduce cost have, in fact, worked. One of the causes of a large increase in cost in 2010, I believe, was they were not very good at integrating technology. At the last minute, they had to go to paper and hire a contractor to process paper. But they learned how to apply a lot of new technologies in time for 2020. Yes, they did. And so getting into 2030, do you feel, I mean, overall, looking at their lessons learned process, which is seven-eighths of the way done there, and the fact that they understand their costs in great detail, they should be pretty confident that 2030 could go smoother than 2020 in the absence of some kind of national emergency that affected pretty much the entire economy. What we think is that the census is increasing its ability, first of all, to obtain clear, reliable data on both the cost and the scheduling aspects. And that provides them with um, a, a baseline against which they can compare the costs of the various projects and programs of the census, even while the census is underway. I mean, what we did find is that the Census Bureau is different from other agencies because, for example, when we examine their work, the work schedules from other federal agencies, we don't often see that the agencies have saved as much valuable information, for example, in monthly snapshots of master schedule file data, that the census has. And so what that allows the census to do is to have a better sense of the quality and reliability of their estimate, then they can look at the costs and the progress of the schedule as they go along in the 2030 census if they continue to incorporate 
changes that we and they have identified. And hopefully, because we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future, that will allow them to both better plan and execute the 2030 census. I guess maybe they think of the census as a continuous process, a 10-year process, in some cases longer than a 10-year process. It's a rolling, overlapping process with the enumeration itself happening periodically. But really, the census never ends then, does it, in that sense? No, that's correct. The Census Bureau starts planning for decennial census about 14 years before the census is actually carried out. So that means that there is an overlap between whatever the next census is, and then the one that comes after the the next census. So yes, there is an overlap. And your specific recommendation, and did they agree with it? Yes, we have two recommendations, and the Census Bureau agreed agrees with both of them. So the first one is that the director of the census should document and take steps during the 2030 census to evaluate the Bureau's lessons learned process, because as I mentioned earlier, they could not fully carry out this process during the 2020 census. And our second recommendation is also that the director of the census should include steps in the 2030 census schedule management plans for learning lessons. And that should be based on a systematic after the fact evaluation of the schedule data. And they accepted those recommendations and Yes. Good to go. All right. Yvonne Jones is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, Associate Provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in 
abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think 
you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it You know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.